I think man, trying to manage prices is almost inherently deceptive because you're you're destroying the tr- the truth or price discovery process itself. And that's that's um, that's the challenge that the central banks fail. And and we're living under this assumption that central banks have always existed, that they've always been successful, mm-hmm. and that they always will. And um, in one of uh, Luke Roman's recent newsletters, he had a quote. I, 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna get the words wrong slightly, but it said that um, the most undervalued asset on Wall Street is a history book. <laughs> That's a good. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by N. Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. There's one other thing that money is that I, I haven't mentioned so far, and it occurs to me today because I've been thinking more about like my personal relationship history and the way that relationships have revolved around money and the role that money has played. And a lot of people say, oh, it's unfortunate that money gets involved. Money doesn't mean love. Money can't replace love. But I kind of have come to think it's the opposite, that money is, among all the other things, the perfect abstract battleground where you can work out or you are kind of forced Mm. to play out your interpersonal issues with someone you're romantically involved with. Mm. I was on a um, a, a group vacation. It was a yoga retreat with a bunch of other people. And there's a young couple and it was at a lunch and this couple was it was like we're the last one sitting there and this couple asked me specifically because i was one of the few married people there um i'm on my second marriage by the way so i speak from experience and that they said what um what would you recommend 
what's your advice for a couple that is getting married? And I went right to money. I said, figure out, are you going to have a joint checking account? If you are, who's going to put what amount in and what that means to you? What do you expect of each other going forward? Because money, I won't say money ruined my first relationship, but I will say that our all of our problems with each other were manifested through money. I ended up supporting both of us and she ended up um, passive aggressively forcing me to support both of us. And we had, you know, we had conversations about it and then we took on a bunch of debt and, you know, like things kind of came to a head. We went on a, we went on a vacation. We went to San Francisco in the winter one day and, and um, she was cold and she bought like a $300 sweater. Mm-hmm. And I was so pissed that she bought the sweater because it was so expensive. And I was like, we can't, it's half, it, we're, our, we're, we're halfway through our first day. We had a brunch, you got a massage and a sweater. We spent $500 and we had a budget, you know, we had a budget for this vacation and we kind of blew it before our first lunch. And I realized, I was like, you can't, you, you can't fuck somebody who you're angry at because they bought a sweater because they were cold. It's so complicated. Like, obviously I don't want her to be cold, but I don't, but I resent that I had to pay for the sweater and I resent Mm. that it was an expensive one. And we didn't work any of that stuff out. And it was only in breaking up and kind of going through, by the way, and I'll tell you, I'm lucky. My ex was a brilliant person and very cool and very rational. And it was in the course mm-hmm. of our breakup that she said, I just, I just was naive and I thought you were rich. And, um, you know, when we met, when I met her, when I met her, I had $28,000. That was how much I had mm-hmm. when I met her. And she knew that. And because she was from a super poor background, mm. she thought that meant I was rich. And, <laughs> And that was all of my money. And, uh, um, you know, that wasn't, it's not like, it's, this wasn't like 1924. Yeah. This was, uh, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it was like the teens. And um, I was like, wow, yeah, no, I was not rich when you met me. And she just said, I always just thought, you know, like, and even though I complained about it, she thought I was being petty for complaining because obviously mm-hmm. I was a rich guy. Mm-hmm. And um, ultimately I think she felt like, maybe the world owed her and I was the one who was going to pay the bill. And then we worked it out in our divorce and became much closer. And um, that was my advice. I was like, you got to talk about the money. So anyways, this is, I didn't mean for this to be like a a long confessional, but I do think that money is an emotional medium. It's an, it's a forum for emote for, for working out your emotions with someone. No, that's, it's great. That's a wisdom, really, I would say. Um, and this is something, obviously, we talk about money a lot on this show, but we haven't touched on how it's such an um, an extremely emotional topic for a lot of people. Um, to the point of it being taboo, right? Like, oftentimes, people just won't discuss finances outside the family, even with friends. You know, a lot of people don't talk about it. And I love that definition you gave, which I'll try to paraphrase. It's something like the perfect abstract battleground to play out the emotional issues you have with your partner. Mm -hmm. It's so true because, again, if money 
is essential, right? Money is power, we might say, like power in the the physical sense, you know, of watts, right? Energy per unit time. Mm-hmm. Not power in like a political sense that, oh, I have control over you, although obviously money can afford you some political power as well, but in just the purely physical sense of the word power, it's absolutely necessary for life to even exist, right? As essential as food or as oxygen or anything else at least in modern civilized society. I mean, I guess you could argue you can go and be a subsistent farmer, subsistence farmer somewhere and get by without money, but that's not practical for most people. And so, yeah, I think it's wise that you share that advice. It's so important to level set expectations with your partner regarding money if you plan on having a successful long-term relationship. Because if you don't, if you're misaligned on those expectations as you described... I mean, that's a recipe for disaster, right? She's going to view you one way. You're the rich guy. I can just spend money at infinitum. And then you're the, you know, you're the practical guy holding the purse strings. That's naturally going to build some resentment, you know? So I think laden in here too is just the importance of the radical honesty, radical truth that you really have to talk about these things, even when, especially when they're uncomfortable to talk about. And, you know, I would also say like money and like people don't talk about sex a lot too. Even people that have, even partners that have, obviously have a sex life together. There's oftentimes they won't talk about what they like, what they don't like, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to get comfortable having uncomfortable conversations if you're going to have a successful long-term relationship of any kind, whether it's romantic, professional, you know, even friends. Like this is very, very important. Um. So yeah, anyone that's young out there listening to this, I, I hope you take heed because that's that's some good wisdom you just shared. Um, well, um, let's get back to the bullion standard in England, <laughs> 1926. Hard to do it. Um, so uh, England goes back on the gold standard. 1925, and they go back in 486. And when they went back on the gold standard, they didn't go back on the classical gold standard, which is the gold coin standard. They went back to the gold standard in a new format that we will call the bullion standard. Going forward from 1926 to 71, there were sort of two standards in play. One was the bullion standard and one was the gold exchange standard. And and um, I'll explain them both. But England ran bullion standard from 26 to 31. And I'm going to read a excerpt from Montague Norman, the governor of the Bank of England. He wrote a letter to the, uh, the governor of the Bank of Norway. All these, you know, this, this elite club of central bank presidents write to each other about how to govern the finances of their nation. And they're doing so thinking that they are, at this time, still thinking that they're independent actors, independent, that they aren't an arm of treasury. And that's, I mean, I want to back up. There's, when we first started the series again, for if anyone's jumping in here and they didn't go with like the first um, bunch of episodes, we laid out essentially what the the resonant themes of this entire book are. And I'm going to recap them. One is the value of monetary orthodoxy about being pretty orthodox about what the gold standard meant. 
in terms of its what it like um wh- why it was valuable a second key theme throughout this book is convertibility meaning the mechanism by which the man- average person on the street could turn in their paper money and get gold back at a fixed mm. ratio that comes back again and again as a as the thing that gives people power and the ultimate way that that the average citizen can issue a vote of no confidence 365 days a year. Mm-hmm. Um, another theme is the loss of central bank independence. So this letter I'm going to read shows you like the emotional state of two central bankers that fully thought they were and should be independent. Um, and then the last themes, which we've already touched on, are the abuse and growth of the credit system, ineffective application of the interest rate mechanism, and then the... Um, the tension between discretion versus automaticity. Discretion is these legislators or this central banker can change the rules because they think it's in the best interest of the people. There's an mm-hmm. emergency. That's discretion. And automaticity is uh, there may be an emergency, but there's no more money. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So those themes kind of all come into play here. Uh, and here's the letter from Norman to um, the Bank of Norway. It must surely be the concern of all to avoid, so far as possible, disturbing fluctuations in the value of gold. I doubt whether at present the means exist for doing so in all circumstances, and I therefore think that every opportunity should be taken of improving the efficacy of such means as we have. I would therefore suggest that your decision should be taken on these broad grounds of principle. In some other countries, the question is complicated by the habits and psychology of the public, but I understand that in Norway, the convenience of paper currency is appreciated, and confidence in the value of money does not depend on the existence of gold coin. You are therefore free to adapt your... You know, he's sort of like hinting. You are therefore free to adapt your policy to circumstances. Such liberty, to my mind, is valuable because the future gold supplies of the world are a matter of uncertainty. I do not believe that gold in circulation can safely be regarded as a reserve that can be made available in case of need. And I think that even in times of abundance, hoarding is bad. And this is key because it weakens the command of the central bank over the monetary circulation and hence the purchasing power of the monetary unit. For these reasons, I suggest that your best course would be to establish convertibility of notes into gold bars only. And in amounts which will ensure that the use of monetary gold can be limited in case of need to the settlement of international balances. So, I mean, this is such a key sentence. He says, I'm going to go back to it. I think that even in times of abundance, hoarding is bad because because it's not not that he not that he he like trips over the very first fallacy of Austrian economics that Mm. hoarding is a thing and Mm. that if it is a thing, it is bad. That's fallacious. And number two, he thinks it's bad because it weakens the command of the central bank. That's he's saying the he's saying the loud part out loud. Mm-hmm. Hoarding is saving is good because it takes money out of circulation, it lowers prices, and it gives savers more purchasing power. And that's what ends a depression: is people save, the money becomes more scarce, it becomes more valuable, and then. The money that you do have buys you more, and that's what gets you out of... That is the correction process, and that is the silver lining to a depression, and that's how it ends. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so that uh, um, that was how they were all trying to coordinate this new bullion standard. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna if you're if you're following me in this uh, mm-hmm. um, outline, I'm gonna go ahead two paragraphs and I'm gonna come back. But just just to give people a sense of what that meant financially at the time, in the 20s, um, uh, the the bars they're talking about these 400 ounce gold bars. And they went back at four four point two five pounds per ounce. That was my own math that I that I had to do retroactively. Not that hard, but it does not it's not published anywhere easy to find. Mm-hmm. So four point two five pounds per ounce. So it's um one thousand seven hundred pounds per four hundred ounce bar, which was eight thousand two hundred and sixty two nineteen twenty five dollars, which equals one thousand four hundred one 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 hundred forty four thousand three hundred twenty one twenty twenty three dollars so oh. minimum transaction side if you want to issue a vote of no confidence on the government the minimum transaction size is one hundred and forty four thousand dollars well who who has the disposable cash to issue a vote of no confidence the only people who have that are the people who are already enriched by the system mm-hmm. and they're not going to be the ones saying I don't trust you government I'm going to take I mean actually they might I, I would say I'm sure there are wealthy people who want to abscond with their gold and take it out. So mm-hmm. I retract what I said for the last minute. But Well, it omits a lot of people though. Yeah, like anyone below that threshold is omitted from expressing that vote of no confidence. It just puts it, it yeah. So that's why it just puts a it really limits to like, you know, the the one percent of one percent of people mm-hmm. who have the power to do it. Um so this is Pally's commentary on that letter. The image of Montague Norman left behind by the popular press and the Keynesian literature is that of a stiff, unreformed Victorian banker. The foregoing quotation from that letter is one evidence among many of his ability to disguise his ultimate intentions. The idea of stabilizing the value, the purchasing power of gold, bordered on revolutionary. Taken at face value, it implied the closest possible cooperation of central banks under a unified direction. But the proposition that gold should be concentrated in each nation's central reserve was along the lines of a pre-war development, which was accelerated during the war. Again, these echoes of what's happening now, this whole series also is a... The reason why we're doing this, and I'll keep repeating this, is because what's happening now has such an echo of what happened 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the inflationary debt spiral process that we're undergoing was already started in 2019. Robert and I were already talking about this. But COVID brought it all forward. So this is Pally talking about World War World World War One brought forward trends that were already in play in 1914. Uh, that was accelerated during the war. The practice of deliberately drawing gold out of circulation represented a change, albeit a minor one, in the substance of the classical gold standard, leading eventually to the outright prohibition of gold ownership in the United States and in Britain. He's referring to six, Order 6102. Mm-hmm. The wartime process of withdrawing gold coins from circulation, replacing them by banknotes and deposits, was continued in most countries until gold coins largely vanished from circulation. Almost everywhere, even in France, the central bank's obligation to sell gold had been limited to bars of appreciable size. This is the gold bullion standard. Gold coins were simply not made available. To strengthen their gold holdings was the aim of the European monetary, monetary authorities, Although withdrawing gold coin from circulation in order to increase the central bank's gold reserves, in theory at least, tended to have an inflationary effect. The central bank's increased gold holdings permitted an increase in central bank credit. 
what's interesting to me and i think is like a simple tentpole that people should realize is that this whole concept the concept of controlling the price level you know again this is i'm i, I keep re- going over again things that we said a year ago but you see all, all over the literature that the central bank is trying to control the price level and it's a very broad statement it's very hard to interpret because they mean the price of everything but in this mm-hmm. specific instance the price of the money relative to gold, which theoretically was pegged, but still could drift. The idea of maintaining that that price level by centralizing the gold was a radical thing at the time. It just wasn't part of the remit of central banks. They were already trying to do it. And then World War One brought it forward. Yeah, it's so, I mean, very important letter and response by Powell here. And again, I just don't think we can hammer this point home enough in this series, but convertibility is essentially the mechanism which keeps a monetary system honest, right? Mm-hmm. That people have the power to say, no, I don't trust this issuance of currency. Give me the gold, right? Give me the real money. The power to say no effectively, right? Which is what keeps producers honest in any market environment. Right, the fact that you can say no to a particular producer and go take your business elsewhere is what incentivizes that producer to deal with you in good faith. And central bankers are essentially taking that away, right? They're taking away people's, at least most people's power to say no, again, below that threshold in the gold bullion standard. And this idea of that affording central banks greater discretion to change the rules, to expand credit, really to tax, right? To tax people implicitly through inflation. Mm-hmm. And it's undercutting the automaticity of the gold, the actual gold standard, which in this case would represent rule, like the rules of nature in a way, right? That there, were, there was actual, the money had scarcity, had real scarcity. There's real consequences to uh, moving money or issuing new money, right? There's actual consequence. In the case of money, it's scarcity, right? Like if once the the scarcity of money is compromised, as we've touched on too, the money is effectively on its way to the graveyard, right? It's mm-hmm. it's using its it's losing its utility. And this reminds me of I think this was um oh man, Sowell, Thomas Sowell. He said something like the first rule of economics is scarcity, and the first rule of politics is denying the first rule of economics. <laughs> <laughs> And so it's so critical to absorb this point. Um, and again, when money, you know, when money dies, ultimately, the society that it that it, it is facilitating is also doomed, right? And you could just look at the case of any hyperinflation historically to see how bad things really get. So this is such a telling, telling passage. And I think this is why not your keys, not your coins mm-hmm. is so powerful because because it touches a deep cultural memory that all of us have almost it's almost in our dna that not your keys not your coins refers back to um a thousand years of centralized depository institutions abrogating the promise that they made to hold enough cash money in reserve against the paper claims Mm -hmm. that is that is um it's it's a swindle as old as time, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I think everyone, it's not like a phrase that was invented for today that only means something today. It means something to everybody forever. And this is this is what he's talking about. And he's talking about it so that, I mean, think about, think about this for a second. Imagine you were in charge of trading the capital account of the globe. Okay, you have the you have the globe's capital account. You can open up a derivatives <laughs> a trading account and you have to trade it. And if you lose, the world loses. And if you gain, the world gains. And it's all based on your intuition and your skill set. That is fundamentally the challenge that central bankers are taking on. Mm-hmm. I am smart enough and capable enough to trade because all central bankers do, no matter what they say, that either have psychological, um, you know, like signal operations where they're trying to affect you through making you feel something, or they have open market operations and they're trying to trade their way out of a problem. If you think that a human being, a single human being or a small group of them have the smarts to trade the world out of their problems, Mm -hmm. they're that good, then, you know, you you can go on believing that the central bank structure that we've built up Mm -hmm will continue to keep all these problems in abeyance. But I don't I don't think and I, by, when, by the way, when I hear Jay Powell speak, I don't hear a dummy. I don't hear some, you know, when I hear Janet Yellen speak, I hear I think, oh God, this is this is mm-hmm. disaster. Mm-hmm. But when I hear Jay Powell speak, I'm like, he's not dumb. I I would say the same things. I just mm-hmm. don't think it's possible for I wouldn't trust myself. I don't think it's possible for one person to do it. But that is what they were trying to do. That is what Norman's saying we should do. We'll trade our way through it mm-hmm. for everyone on everyone's mm-hmm. behalf. We don't think it's possible for gold in the hands of all the people. We we don't think it's smart for everyone to have control of the money. Meanwhile, that's all that the economic system is. That's all the price discovery system is, is everyone having their own specialized bit of input to create the price level as like, a, mm-hmm. a big a big game that everyone's playing mm-hmm. yeah and and just to echo that point like it's not even possible for a board of central planners to ever be smarter than the market it's like it's a contradiction in terms in a way because the market itself through price discovery it reflects the distributed intelligence of all market actors right everyone's acting on that price to give rise to the price effectively you could, you know, on Wall Street, they say price is truth often. So price discovery is truth discovery in a way. Like, what is this thing? What is the actual supply of this good relevant to the existing con- configuration of demand, right? That's telling you what, how much of the thing there is available and how badly people actually want it. And when you start tampering with that, you're, you're, I mean, you're destroying one of the most important communication systems in the world. So I think man, trying to manage prices is, uh, is almost inherently deceptive because you're you're destroying the, tr- the truth or price discovery process itself. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. It looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. 
And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. And that's that's um, that's the challenge that the central banks fail. And, and we're living under this assumption that central banks have always existed, that they've always been successful mm-hmm. and that they always will. And um, in one of uh, Luke Groman's recent newsletters, he had a quote. I, 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 I'm going to I'm going to get the words wrong slightly, but it said that um, the most undervalued asset on Wall Street is a history book. <laughs> That's a good. Um, so, the exchange standard was what other countries did. England was the center of the financial world, a financialized economy, and they were managing the money, and then that put everyone else on an exchange standard. Um, they did this to make the pound to reinforce that the pound was the de facto currency of the world and that was part of norman's plan was to make a new gold standard that was in his own image what he he sort of took advantage of what happened in world war 1 to create the gold standard that he wanted and that everyone else would be on that and and again i'm not i like norman i like the, his story and and none of this, and I should also repeat, Palyi was not, I'm pulling a lot of quotes that sound like he's very critical of central banks, but he he wasn't. I think he thinks that they did a fair job for their time. So mm-hmm. if you if you happen to get this book and you read it, don't go into it thinking that this is all like him slagging on central banks. It's not. I think he thinks that they, that if left to their independence and if their one job was to manage the currency and make sure that it was A, convertible, and B, convertible at a fixed ratio for all of time, which is what they had done during the classical gold standard, that central banks do a pretty good job. Uh-huh. So I, I wanted to put that, he's, he doesn't have a bone to pick with central banks per se. Um, but what the, what the gold exchange standard was, was it would allow a smaller, weaker nation to use the gold standard, piggyback on, on a large nation them using the gold standard. So it would allow like a satellite central bank to use the currency of the sun middle central bank. And it would allow them to create a a lot more, basically it creates infinite more leverage and credit expansion. Mm. And um, Palyi has a a nice little uh, explainer, an, an example with numbers. He says, let us assume that in her dealings with France, Britain incurred a 1 million pound deficit. So meaning that in in there in a, in some settlement period, maybe it's a month or quarter or a year. The there are a lot of a lot of goods are going back and forth. Banks are messaging each other, and then at the end of that quarter, the central banks settle up the difference, and Britain has imported more from France than France has imported for Britain, and so Britain owes France a million pounds. Under the classical gold standard, Britain would have had to ship a million pounds worth of gold to France. Britain lost gold. France gained it. The monetary 100 million, just a 100 100 million. Sorry, the monetary base of the two countries combined remained the same. Now, by substituting a debt certificate for gold, a part of the reserve assets of the two countries was doubled. One million pounds in gold remained in London, and one million pounds in foreign exchange were added to the French reserves. The deflationary pressure of London was avoided, the inflationary pressure in France increased and the world as a whole experienced a corresponding increase 
in international liquidity, which tended to be inflationary. Mm -hmm. That was the gold exchange standard, which we then were on in some form until Nixon pulled us off at 71. Which is um, effectively a fractional reserve, right? Yeah, mm -hmm, it is. Yeah. Now, Britain claimed that they were good for all of it. Like mm -hmm. they would say, oh, well, look, we credited France with 100 million pounds because of our trade deficit, but we're we're good for it. But, you know, they had, I think, five, five percent or less. So there was no way that they could withstand a run on their gold. Mm -hmm. And look, if there's never a run on the gold, then maybe it's not an issue. But there's always a run on the gold. Every mm -hmm. financial system is always under attack at all times. Mm -hmm. And so once you get out over your skis, someone's going to try and take you down. And um, see, so you really can't afford it as a bank. And then that's that is that is what happened to to England in thirty one is that they just there was a run. Um, no one has even tried to take them down. There was just there was just uh, it started in Austria, and that's all she wrote. Banks started pulling money, and then they it it all it all rebounds up to the top. You know, mm -hmm. people started bullet, people pulled pulled gold out of out of German banks. German banks pulling gold out of London, and then it's over. Um. So, um, let me take a second and orient myself with what, what, what the point of the, okay. So as Bitcoiners, I think there's one thing that we get wrong, but we get it wrong for the right reasons. But I want to, because this is this whole back half of the series is about mythologies, the mythologies we create and why we create them. I, I do... Um, I do want to, let me see something. Okay. Let me read a, I'm going to read another Pally, uh, chunk, and then I'm going to explain why I think Bitcoiners are getting it right, but possibly for the wrong reasons and why I want us as Bitcoiners to, to be able to quote our sources correctly. Pally writes on page 123, the fear of an impending gold shortage was gaining ground. Okay, this is we're we're about to to get into this myth, and this is the biggest one that you still hear today, which is that the shortage of gold is what hampers progress of society. That gold is, you know, the cross of gold. Mm -hmm. That so, um, Pally starts to address the myth of the gold shortage. Uh, the fear of an impending gold shortage was gaining ground in the 1920s. It became an obsession when prices tumbled in the first years of the Great Depression. The gold shortage notion served as a convenient argument in favor of devaluations. It offered a simple explanation of the global crisis. Welcome to those quantity theorists that Pally doesn't agree with, who, with sovereign disregard for the facts, postulated a more or less fixed relationship between the size of the monetary base, the money supply, and the general level of prices. So just to note that money... Mo that Pally does not agree with the quanti quantity theory of money, and he comes more from this that credit inflations, credit events are attributable to non-monetary forces. Um, back to his words. The allegation of an impending gold shortage was not new. In the late 1870s, an Austrian geologist, Professor Edward Seuss, credited a created a sensation by predicting that a monetary catastrophe was threatening due to the exhaustion of gold-bearing ore bodies. This pessimistic outlook fitted into the depressed atmosphere of that period, but 
It faded with the opening up of the major Transvaal mines in the 1890s and the subsequent rise of prices. After the First World War, a more sophisticated version was introduced by Gustav Cassell and independently a mining statistician Joseph Kitchen. According to Cassell, quote, an increase in total gold stocks of somewhat under 3% per annum was required in order to maintain stable prices. He reached this conclusion by comparing average annual prices of the British Sourback in Index of Wholesale Commodity Prices from the 1860s to 1910 with annual increments of new gold. Kitchen arrived at nearly identical conclusions. About 3% was supposedly the approximate annual rate of progress in real worldwide wealth creation. By this token, he claimed a lag in the increase of gold production must bring price levels down with it. Business activity to a corresponding extent. Cassell went further, asserting that the gold standard was afflicted by a paradox. The annual rate of gold output itself must rise at an accelerating pace in order to provide adequate monetary reserves. The greater the accumulation of gold, the greater ought also to be the inflow of new gold to satisfy the 3% issuance rate. I don't really see why he thought there was a paradox if gold traditionally had been increasing at a 3%. 3% annualized is ref self-referential to the preceding year. So, mm. I mean, I don't know that I see it as a paradox. It's just you need a compound annual growth rate for the supply of gold. But I'm bringing it up to say that there was always already this developing body of literature saying, oh, there's not enough gold. There's not enough gold. Um, it's going to be deflationary. And that, as Bitcoiners, we should see that that's the argument against Bitcoin. A lot of really smart finance professionals will say, look, you know, uh, um, a fixed stock of money, you can't run an economy on that. And mm -hmm. so gold went through the same thing. Again, it's another echo from before to the future because we're going to be on a Bitcoin standard and people will say this. So this is the thing that I want to correct, something I didn't really realize until I got into this, which was that we talk about Triffin's Dilemma. Mm -hmm. That is something I've mentioned in conversation, something I've tried to explain to people, something that's been explained to me. And um, we have to get it right what Triffin was talking about because Triffin was right about the breakdown of the dollar link to gold. Mm -hmm. But he was he was right for the wrong reasons. And furthermore, he, he predicted a massive deflationary crash as a result of Bretton Woods, but actually we got the opposite. We got an inflationary we got massive inflation. So he he got he had the right the right conclusion for the wrong reasons and the wrong result. And there's a really, really interesting BIS paper. It's called BIS paper number six eighty four, Triffin Dilemma. Triffin Dilemma or Myth. And as we talk about this, I think think about the myth of Triffin and why we as Bitcoiners find it convenient to perpetuate the Triffin myth. Mm. Because as self-interested asset holders, in Bitcoin, we are prone to inventing narratives that serve our interests. And I think the Triffin Dilemma, in case anyone isn't isn't aware of it, the Triffin Dilemma is that it's a two-pronged dilemma. If the US doesn't run enough deficits, then the world won't have enough money. Mm -hmm. And and then the world will fall into a deflationary depression because the US didn't run enough deficits. That's That's one horn of the dilemma. The other horn is if the US continues to run deficits, then there'll be a inflationary crash. Or I think this is where people muddy it. They say, oh, well, they'll continue to run deficits. And I was never clear on the 
I could see intuitively why the second horn, the well, they, they'll have to run deficits forever, and that's a problem. But Triffin was extremely specific about what that second horn was. And the second horn was not that there would be like some failure in treasury issuance if we had to continue to run deficits. It would be that if we continue to run deficits relative to our gold holdings, there would be a run on our currency. Mm-hmm. That's just, it's just a really specific nuance to what Triffin predicted and he got it wrong. There wasn't a run on our currency and well, there wasn't in 71, but prior to that, there was inflation and it was much larger inflation than he predicted. Um, I'm going to just go through my notes because I, I think I said what I just told you, but in more detail. In uh, He testified to Congress in 1960 and he has a book called Gold and the Dollar Crisis and um, to recap what he said then from 30, uh, um, that the United States was running an overall balance of payments deficits and thus accumulating dollar liabilities to the rest of the world backed by gold. If the U.S. were to stop running a balance of payments deficit, i.e. if they were to stop supplying the world with dollars in ever expanding amounts, then the liquidity needed for the expansion of global trade would evaporate. If the United States did continue to provide international liquidity, then eventually U.S. policy would be unable to lower interest rates without gold fleeing to other jurisdictions where rates were more competitive. Either way, deflation and depression would ensue. In effect, as Triffin argued, as others had argued in the interwar period, that the gold shortage and the increasing use of the dollar as visual reserves would inevitably lead to a run on U.S. gold holdings. And this would occur once all of our outstanding dollar liabilities to this world exceeded what we held as monetary gold at the Federal Reserve. So Mm. Triffin's remembered for having correctly called the breakdown between the gold and dollars in 71. And he called this in like 50, between 59 and 60. So overall, our US external liabilities, which is its total dollars as a ratio to total gold, it reached one-to-one, the value of our monetary gold holdings in 1958. So six years later, U.S. liabilities to officials, meaning just central banks, or um, that reached the... the So in, in 58, total, total, total liabilities was to officials and not official entities. That reached one-to-one in 58. But official entities like central banks, we were still, we still had more, we, we're not one-to-one. We still had plenty of gold. Mm-hmm. We actually reached our full capacity um, in 64 of ratio of liabilities to officials in 64. And then in 71, just seven years later, that's when Nixon broke, broke the gold standard. But here's the thing. People thought that was the timeline. But in 65, the BIS found out that there was actually, that's when they discovered the euro dollar system, all these mm-hmm. offshore dollars existed, mm-hmm. and that there was six, there was basically seven billion in unaccounted for dollar reserves placed offshore in like what was then the nascent euro dollar system that no one knew about. So in actuality, US short term liabilities exceeded its gold holdings way earlier than anyone thought. So if you revise the timeline to inc- include like, Euro dollar holdings and the system was insolvent back in 62 and no one knew it. So this is Triffin 
many years later, addressing what he feels like he got wrong. He writes, let me also admit, however, that I did change my mind about the main danger confronting the future of the international monetary system. Well, my initial, initial diagnosis was seen by central bankers as placing excessive stress on the first horn of the Triffin Dilemma, the danger of world deflation. My later writings placed increasing stress on the second, the inflationary potential of continuing U.S. deficits. Even so, I was totally wrong in underestimating the duration and the size of the U.S. deficits that foreign central bankers would be willing to absorb at the cost of an inflationary explosion of world monetary reserves and of a multiple expansion of the money supply in their countries under the traditional system of fractional reserve requirements. I think that as Bitcoiners, we think that the system's going to come apart because it seems to defy logic and gravity. And I think what Triffin learned and what we're learning is as bad as we think it is, it's way worse and it continue it can continue even longer. Do you have anything to add in there? Because I feel like I've been talking for a while. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's really jumping out to me here. Who was this guy earlier? Um, Castle? Mm. No, I'm sorry. Castle. This was a... Uh, was it Joseph Kitchen? No, according to Castle, right? An increase in the total gold stocks of somewhat under 3% per annum was required in order to maintain at stable prices. That really sounds like that classic fallacious argument that the money supply needs to track productivity growth. Totally. Right, people uh, often well, I, say, yeah. If, if he's a statistician, shouldn't he know that that's a... <laughs> I guess you need to have some... Economic education in there too to understand that's totally bogus. And the other thing that struck me here was um, Triffin's dilemma. It almost sounds like a restatement of Groman's economic law we touched on earlier that all pegs break. All right, that you're not going to be, you can't keep running this independent monetary policy where the U.S. has deficits ad infinitum or deficits without tears, as the French called it without there being a run on the currency at some point, right? At some point, people want to cast that vote of no confidence and saying, hey, US, you're running a fractional reserve. So I don't I don't want to hold these dollar liabilities. I want to hold the gold, right? Let me let me convert, basically. And I think um again, without factoring in this Euro dollar stuff, which is a bit new to me actually, it's interesting that it was actually the system was insolvent or breaking down even much earlier than 71. I think you said by 1962 even. Yeah. I think the numbers I saw prior to that, which did not include Euro dollar, was in 1971, the US dollar was effectively running a 16% fractional reserve at that time. So there were six times mm -hmm. dollar liabilities outstanding with just the Fed. Then they had gold reserves. Then they had gold in reserve. So it's interesting that that, that number might be an understatement. And then when you get things like the Euro dollar system, which is really just the what, um, fractional reserve on top of a fractional reserve, right? It's like, mm -hmm. um, that this thing can break down even more quickly, but even when it's broken, it's like, you don't know it in, until hindsight, right? Something like that, that the thing yeah. can be broken and last a lot longer than we may expect. So, um, Reminds me of that other saying that the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent, sort of thing. To me, it feel it's 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 important as to like what 
mythology around Bitcoin is. And I, I was in a spaces with um, George Gambon, mm-hmm. and he was like, "Yeah, Bitcoiners." Uh, he was representing this this this. I, I hear this a lot that like Bitcoiners think that um, that the Bitcoin's going to replace the dollar, or that the dollars that the dollar's going to disappear, that the system's going to come apart. And and he goes, and he was he he was he was complimentary towards Bitcoin, but complimentary toward the ultimate like doomer outlook. And I think it's important to agree with him and to say, yeah, my 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 best case scenario for Bitcoin and my most likely case for Bitcoin is A, not that the dollar goes away, but that the system finds a way to perpetuates itself with outsized and somewhat frustrating inflation, but which is just taller tolerable but oppressive to the masses and bitcoin mm-hmm. continues to be this option in the background that's what i think will happen and i don't think that and 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 my my love of bitcoin is not because i think the system's going to come crashing down and my obsession and criticism with the central bank isn't because i think they're going to like blow the system up it's just simply that they'll be able to skate through this after they create about 200% inflation for, mm-hmm. for a few years right you know in total once they get to, you know, once we get to, you know, 70, 60, 70% debt to GDP, like they're through the difficult part and then we're back to things being normal. So it's not a, it's not a, um, it's not a, everything's going to come apart in either direction outlook on the world. It's that they're, look, they're very creative. I mean, BTFP blows my mind as like an insult and a creative solution, uh, the bank term funding program. And that's like one of those things I never would have thought of it. It's a full-on two-tiered pricing system for assets, mm-hmm. which never works. It didn't work. They tried to do a two-tiered pricing system for gold in 68. The gold standard fell apart in 71. They tried to do it in the 1720s. Uh, John Law tried to do it mm-hmm. with uh, the Mississippi Corporation. You know, French debt was trading at like I don't know, some fraction, 60, 60 cents on the dollar, 50 cents on the dollar. And then John Law comes along and says, hey, you, we'll, take, um, we'll take government debt at par and give you stock for it. And people were like, great. So they gave him all the stock. Meanwhile, he's through doing this, through like a fake two-tiered price, here's one price for the market, here's one price for my friends. Through that, he quote unquote, reestablish the credit of the French government, it still all came apart a year or two later. It doesn't work. It doesn't work, mm-hmm. but it's very creative and it's, you know, it can, it, can ex- it can extend things a lot longer. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin, and for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. 
So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Um, yeah, I would add to just, um, this is a subtlety, maybe even a speculation, but it makes sense to me. As more people exercise that Bitcoin exit option, you know, say so they're just tired of being taxed through inflation or otherwise financially oppressed uh, um, through any of these, you know, capital controls, et cetera, that, that pervade inside of the legacy financial system. As more people exercise that option to exit, it's actually going to accelerate USD inflation, right? Because you're selling dollars to buy Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think there's a difference here than what we saw with gold. So if, if people exercise that option with gold and they say, hey, cast a vote of no confidence, convert the currency into gold, selling dollars for gold, they ultimately, even if they did that, at some point you need to rotate back into currency to transact in a practical way, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's difficult to transact physical gold, right? It's expensive, it's right. risky, et cetera, et cetera. So there was always kind of this revolving door that even if you exercised convertibility and went out of currency into gold, at some point you needed to come back into the currency. So it gives it more runway, I guess, in that sense, that there's there's still reservation demand for the currency, even in the event of convertibility. But with Bitcoin, it's a little bit different because if you rotate out of currency into Bitcoin, you have a globally transactable asset. Yeah. Right. You don't really need to rotate back into currency, or at least not to the same degree as you did on a gold standard. So I think Bitcoin might be an accelerant to uh, the the failure of the system, basically, or the let's say the inflation of of USD or whatever the fiat currency is, in a way that gold wasn't. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you can theoretically, once you leave, I'm trying. Once you leave the fiat system, theoretically, you could never go back, and you could just yeah. be in Bitcoin if you wanted to be, which is which is really, really interesting. Um, yeah, I want. I, I kind of makes me want to talk about the get on zero movement and like what that's all about, which means get on zero fiat, and 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 the 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 people who are like living fully on Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. They're the main thing they talk about in one of the groups that I'm in is how to work the cross-currency rails between Bitcoin and, and fiat. Like mm -hmm. that's people who are keeping zero fiat dollars, they still must get back to fiat one way or the other for some things. And so there's a lot of talk about which of the which of the Bitcoin apps do ACH and how easily you can do it and how many mm -hmm. days. It's like very, it's like it, the, they tend to be very dry comments back and forth about how to function. And of course, everyone's trying as much as possible who's on zero to do as much as they can in Bitcoin, but you can't, you can't do it yet. So, but theoretically, it's it's a really interesting point you're making that in gold, that that is the limitation of gold. No, it, it, at best, it's a bridge from one failing fiat to a possibly future better fiat. That it's a life raft, but it's not like being. It's it's not like it's just it's just temporary. But Bitcoin doesn't have to be. That's, yeah, and that the difference there on the get on zero movement. Bitcoiners needing to get back on fiat rails only to the extent that counterparties demand settlement in fiat. Mm -hmm. How long, I guess the question for me is like, well, how long, it's not the same as gold, right? Where 
it's just more practical to use currency rather than physical gold. Bitcoin is equally practical, maybe even more practical uh, to facilitate settlement globally than with fiat. So the real question is how long will counterparties continue to not accept Bitcoin in settlement? Because to the extent that they start to accept it, you don't ever need to go back, right? You could just live on Bitcoin. Yeah, I wonder if we'll live in some like hybrid world for for a while. Like, let's say we're in a worst case scenario where we're like Argentina or some some you know like um, more of a a more emerging market um, economy where you know if you if you sell a house, you, there's the official price that you list in local dollars, and then there's the there's the U.S. dollar side payment you make with the mm-hmm. house seller, the blue dollar amount, and so major real estate transactions are you. You record the official price, you pay taxes on that amount. Oh, but then you also exchange a brief a briefcase full of cash on the side. And that's mm-hmm. the real price. Mm-hmm. Um, and because to what you're saying, the counterparty is demanding some real money also, in addition to like the failing fiat. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it's 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 really interesting to picture where that's where that's going. It's another one of those areas where again, looking at the world through this prism of gold is very useful to understand what Bitcoin standard would look like, but there are differences too, right? And most of the differences, I think, are centered in the non-physical nature of Bitcoin, right? This is the physical nature of gold that caused it to have certain shortcomings that necessitated the need for currency, whereas Bitcoin doesn't suffer those same shortcomings. Yeah, I mean, Kate, there's, there's, there, Caitlin Long has a lot of commentary that I would direct people to simply because I don't remember it and I can't mm. recap it. But she does talk about how Bitcoin solves Bitcoin solves the velocity problem because it yep. is directly transferable, um, and it speaks to what you're talking about. and And I and I grasped intuitively what she was talking about, but I would like be very interested to go back and reread some of that stuff because mm. it obviates the need for this credit system built on top. Exactly. Yeah, you needed, you needed the credit system or deferred settlement such that the money had high portability on a gold yes. standard. Yes. But that was- Bitcoin obviates that, right? You can have final settlement with high portability, which is something we've never had because you physically had to move the gold, which was had all the problems we already touched on. And again, Bitcoin doesn't have those problems. So it's, a, yeah. it's the same in a way, but there's also this somewhat subtle yet major difference. Which is everything. Yeah, which is which is everything. Um, it what was interesting too about reading about like I went on this Triffin side quest, and I thought, holy shit! Like, did Triffin's dilemma apply to Great Britain? I'd never thought about that before. And then I looked it up, and someone uh, addressed it. Someone wrote a paper about it. It was so interesting. Um, in that same paper, that same BIS paper, they show that the Bank of England's liabilities exceeded its gold holdings. Like right around 1900, in the height of the classical gold standard, and then you see that like the liabilities go vertical while its gold increases increase like just by a tiny bit. Again, look up this paper. Um, I'll repeat the title again. It is called. Um, this will be able to have to go back. BIS working paper number 684. Triffin dilemma or myth? It's so interesting. Um, so, uh, it, 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 if you're listening, it probably didn't occur to you, does the Triffin dilemma apply to Great Britain? 
in the classical gold standard. And it's a really, it does, it does apply. And, and uh, I'm going to read from this paper to explain how it applied or didn't. So the Triffin view is based on the interwar experience, but a puzzle that Triffin was aware of was the experience of the classical gold standard 1880 to 1914, which did not collapse in the way that the interwar regime would. In many ways, the gold standard was a precursor to the gold exchange standard and Bretton Woods because sterling was increasingly substituting for gold in many countries' international reserves. In other words, sterling was acting in many ways as the dollar would in the post-World War II period, as the dominant international currency serving as a vehicle currency, invoicing currency, etc. Many, I like that term, a vehicle currency. I'd never mm -hmm. heard that. It's a really good one. Many emerging countries began substituting sterling, francs, marks, and dollars for gold, more so even than, than the Federal Reserve in 1960. The Bank of England held very low gold reserves, less than 5% of its liabilities, what was termed a thin film of gold. <laughs> Given these facts, why didn't the gold standard dissolve into a deflation depression as Triffin predicted? Of course, the gold standard did collapse in 1914 at the outbreak of World War I, as all the belligerents in a scramble for gold quickly staged a fire sale of their foreign assets and almost all of them suspended gold convertibility. There are a number of possible explanations as to why it didn't collapse. One, because of luck. Perhaps the collapse of the gold standard was just an accident waiting to happen and World War I was the accident. Two, because of ignorance, aka a dearth of statistics and the absence of a renowned economist claiming systemic instability. Huh. I mean, I would say... On the contrary, the inadequacy of Bank of England's gold reserves was very much part of public discussion. If you go back and read Lombard Street, which you and I touched on earlier episodes, they were very much aware of it, but I don't think it was as much. I think that was like among inside money center participants on Lombard Street in, in England in the 1870s. That wasn't like, I don't know, this is what they're saying. This is perhaps this is why it didn't collapse. Uh, number three, because of central bank cooperation and how during the big global financial crises of 1890 to 1907, the Bank of France did have massive gold reserves and aided by other central banks, they provided generous loans to the Bank of England, which may have allowed it to avoid depleting its gold reserves. That did happen. So I'm sure that contributed. Number four, because the Bank of England managed the gold standard and by raising its bank its, its policy bank rate, it could command whatever gold reserves it needed. So this possible, this no, point number four as to why it, Triffin's Dilemma didn't collapse the British gold standard and the classical gold, the, the British classical gold standard, it gets back to the tools of central banks. As we said, this is a theme in the series that the they were, they are now the broken tools of central banks, but they were the working tools of central banks under the classical gold standard because the interest rate tool was designed to be raised to attract gold on a short-term basis from other countries for the sake of yield. If those mm -hmm. other countries believed that you were credit worthy, they'd send you your gold for higher yield. Now you had the gold to satisfy your depositors. And mm -hmm. that's what the interest rate was made to do. They don't do it. It doesn't work that way. So it's now it's broken. Mm -hmm. So then the paper goes on. While each of these four explanations has something to it, one that deserves weight centers on credibility. The classical gold standard may have been more successful because of the credibility of the commitment by the Bank of England and other central banks to the gold standard convertibility rule. The rule required that gold standard adherents maintain the fixed prices of their currencies 
in terms of gold as their primary policy goal. This meant that except in a case of dire emergency, such as a major war or financial crisis, not of their own making, they would not suspend convertibility and they, and they would not follow expansionary monetary or fiscal policy. In case of a major war or serious financial crisis, the central bank could suspend convertibility temporarily and issue paper money or run fiscal deficits on the understanding that when the emergency passed, that convertibility would be restored and the original parity even would be restored at the original parity, even if this meant running a recession. So like this whole thing, this whole question of did Triffin's dilemma apply to England during the classical gold standard basically gets back to how powerful was the mythology around the Bank of England. It was never tested. If it was never tested, then it's just a myth that mm -hmm. people believe that it had credibility. And this is why these myths are so important because it allow it gives you like decades worth of run rate where you can draw your reserves down to nothing, but people still believe that you have one job, one job only, and you maintain credibility on that. Again, like all of these all of these monetary systems are based on on these myths. And I think, you know, for Bitcoin it's like not your keys, not your coins, and twenty one million hard cap. Yes. Yeah. It's <laughs> I would say the central bank cooperation piece is in point number one, I believe. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, point number three. Effectively, that's collusion, right? Yeah, yeah. To what extent can central banks collude to keep these to keep the confidence game going? And if, and fundamentally, to be clear, like fractional reserve banking is a confidence game. It's like how long can we maintain people's faith in this currency? and prevent a run on the bank with all these different policy tools. Chief among them, as you said, offering yield to depositors as a means of attracting gold deposits and shoring up the fractional reserve when it gets too fractional, basically. Um, which is the same thing you see in like, you know, Bitcoin world with things like Celsius and these other uh, custodians, right? They're offering yield to try and attract people's Bitcoin and how do those end up, right? I, be, I think basically all of them have collapsed up until this point. So it's the same game and just a different, different wrapper. I mean, yield. The the concept of yield is so it's so um, what's the word? It's so it's such a self indictment if you think about it. Mm -hmm. If if we said this last episode, if the mon if if the money is 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 finite in supply then yield is zero sum. Yeah. That is a that is a rule of mathematics. All all money has to come from somewhere. And if there are no new units being added, then that means any yield you get comes from someone else paying it to you and they're not realizing it. Right. If if the only way yield can be offered in a way that is like quote unquote sustainable is if new units are created. And so then it's not yield. And in fact, the only way yield can exist is if the money creation is greater than the yield itself. So yield is a is a or or orobos. What's that called? The snake mm. eating its own tail. Yeah. The concept or, of yield, no. yeah, is in 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 a in a um in a non finite money supply system. The whole concept of yield is a lie essentially, mm -hmm. unless you are unless you have a company that is profitable you know you you create something or you can make something for cheaper and outcompete people and your input costs are less 
which is, I, I just said the same thing twice. So, yeah. um, at a minimum, there's risk, right? Because the money, yeah, exactly. if you're yeah. generating yield on it at all, it's being lent out to counterparties to engage in some economic activity. And therefore you run the risk, you run counterparty risk, right? They might not mm -hmm. pay you back. They might go out of business, et cetera. And I guess to the extent that risk is disclo disclosed, it's okay. But a lot of people, depositors seem to be acting as if, oh, I'm just going to put this money here and I get a risk-free return or near risk-free return. And that's just not the case, right? There is risk there. Always, always. Yeah. Well, we don't have like a banger one-liner ending, but I feel like we've come to the end of this of, of what this episode will be because as soon as we get into the next thing in the outline, we're onto a whole new a whole new long continuous thought of myth number two. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is a good stopping point. Yeah, I mean I guess so to put a cap on that myth number one, which was that the scarcity of gold constricted economic growth. Is that correct? Well, really, really myth number one was that I, my outline is a little faulty here. I'm realizing as we're going through it. Myth number one was actually that going back at 46 versus 440, like killed the gold standard and that there was an option. But what I started, I what I worked in was the beginning of myth number, I think three, which is that the scarcity of gold that there was a scarcity of gold and that that was going to lead to a depression. Mm -hmm. So I sort of teased a later myth and then I'm skipping over it to go on to myth number two, which is that laissez-faire capitalism creates, created the depression and then we'll come back to the gold scarcity thing. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm like, my, my ordering isn't fantastic here. And these are very closely related, right? Cause you're saying, yeah. cause free market capitalism is what gives rise to gold as money, which is the most scarce monetary metal effectively. And so you're saying that that obviously would not constrict economic growth um, in the same way that it obviously wouldn't be to blame for the Great Depression. So th they're connected, although obviously different. Yeah, I mean, you're A, you're giving me credit, but B, it's true. And I kind of went back and forth on the ordering. Because of that, I felt like they were all, they were, you could say these are all one myth. They're all mm -hmm. part of the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, that is that that is true. Okay, so we'll stop here and then we'll go into myth two on the next episode. Sounds awesome. Uh, just for people that might be tuning into this, where can people find you on the internet, sir? I am in. I am. Uh, I am in the um, the Siberian backwater of a non-blue check account on Twitter as at programmable tx. Beautiful. Thank you, sir.